CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have you all here uh, today. Got a great panel uh, to talk about, among other things, redistricting, which starts at the uh, state capitol next week. Um, so let me get right to it. It's Tuesday, which means Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is here. How are you, Tamar? Hey, Bill. Freezing cold. I think fall has arrived officially. Oh, from your lips to God's ears. Personally, as a Chicagoan, I, I welcome the colder weather myself. I know a lot of people like you are not happy about it, but thanks for being here uh, today. Professor Andre Gillespie, who, of course, teaches political science at Emory University and is the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference, back with us. Um, Andre, can you deal with cold weather? I prefer warm weather. Okay. <laughs> well, let's do a poll. Amy Steigerwald is here, professor of political science at Georgia State University. <clears throat> what about you, Amy? My happy spot is about 70, and I really don't like it to be oh. warmer or colder, so I don't know okay. what to do with that. And, and Professor <laughs> Charles Bullock, who I always say, given his longevity and his stature, I consider the dean of all political science professors in the state of Georgia. You're a you're a Southerner, uh, Chuck Bullock. I can't imagine you like cold weather. Well, no. When I passed my prelims decades ago, and it was a fat time to be a new PhD, and I my committee asked me where I wanted to go, and I was in St. Louis at that time, and I said, "Well, from the first job, nowhere north of here." So, and I haven't been north. Of here. <laughs> Well, thank you for being with us. And um, I'm really glad you're here today, Chuck, because I do want to dig into redistricting uh, in a few minutes since the session will start uh, next Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday, I think. So it's about a week away. Um, uh, Tamar, let, let me start with an update on an item that we discussed on the show yesterday. Um, we talked about the fact that Richard Rose, the head of the Atlanta chapter of the NAACP, over the weekend, in a rather unusual statement, issued a scathing indictment of Kasim Reed's candidacy for mayor. He thought that Kasim Reed had given away too much in the building of the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, had given tax breaks to high-end residential developments along the Beltline, hadn't done enough for the homeless and the like. Um, and I, I made the comment that I wondered how the National was going to react. Well, they have. Uh, the president of the National Organization, Derek Johnson, has uh, basically slapped Richard Rose down for weighing in on a political race. I have to say, though, to some extent, this sounds like just a, really a feud between a national organization and a local chapter. Nevertheless, it puts Kasim Reed's name out there. Sure. I mean, it was a pretty extraordinary statement from the, the local NAACP last week. And so um, I'm, I'm surprised by just how, um, you know, strict the, the response is, you know, threatening to suspend or even expel Rose if he failed to comply with the cease and desist. Um, 
I believe they are able to endorse political candidates now because they shifted. They're no longer a 501c3. Um, but still, I, I understand why I guess they wouldn't want to set a precedent of, of doing this, but it sure, certainly does put folks in an awkward situation locally. Andra? I, you know, I mean, sort of the, the question of how to endorse when you have historically not been able to do so, I think is a legitimate question. On the other hand, I am not surprised that the national NAACP chapter did decide uh, to basically censure the local chapter for what they did. This is sort of the hallmark of when you have a grassroots organization versus having a top-down organization. And so the NAACP has been able to survive for a long period of time because it's a top-down organization where there's been a lot of centralized control at the national level. But a critique and a complaint often of the NAACP is that it actually stifles local um, innovation and rapid response at the local level for people who are on the ground and actually know what's going on um, in this situation. And I think that this is sort of just a hallmark kind of case of what people are thinking uh, nationally looks very different than what people are thinking on the ground. And thus, there's going to be this disagreement about tactics. So in the long run, this is really an internal organizational dispute. But, Amy, uh, Richard Rose's statement about Kasim Reed was so harsh, coming at a time when the most recent AJC poll uh, shows that the race between um, Felicia Moore and Kasim Reed is basically neck and neck, almost within the margin of error. And with Kasim Reed having very, very high negatives and a large percentage of voters undecided, more important is what that statement could mean for uh, next Tuesday. My bet is that more people will know about the initial statement than will know about sort of the national NAACP's response. Um, and in some ways, right, sort of whether, right, especially the Reed camp likes it or not, right, a lot of the statements that were made in there are critiques that we've sort of seen throughout the way. Um, of uh, Kasim Reed, right, certainly right, responding or referring to sort of the reasons why uh, there had been a change in leadership and uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms was elected mayor, right, and that he declined uh, not to run again. And so we've seen that we've got sort of, he, he, he is battling both high name recognition um, and the fact that there are a number of things that people credit him with, with also the reality that there were a lot of issues that came out of his administration and whether or not he personally was responsible, they're certainly um, tied together. Um, And so I think that that's what he's been having to battle through this entire uh, candidacy. So uh, Chuck Bullock, by the way, the the term limited Kasim Reed, it can come back uh, in a future election, but not after two terms. Um, What do you make of the fact in the AJC poll that almost the same percentage of people say they're undecided this week as said it a month ago when the AJC first polled. Jim Galloway made, I thought, a really smart observation on the show yesterday, and I'd love your thoughts about this. He suggested that you really probably should not consider many of that 40-plus percent of undecideds undecideds. They're probably people who at this stage aren't going to go to the polls and vote at all. What's your take on that? I think Jim's probably right. Uh, We know that uh, municipal elections, anything other than a presidential election, draws far fewer voters. And so, sure, these are people who are registered and who have said, at least in response to the filter questions, that they're thinking about voting. But that doesn't mean that they will. You know, there has been millions of dollars spent on television advertising. So, 
you know, voters at this point should be more aware of what their choices are than they were when the earlier poll was done, but it seems not to have moved the needle in terms of getting people involved. So what does that tell us? It'll tell us that a lot of people are thinking about other things. They're thinking about COVID or their job or the kids' football game this weekend or something. And so they just tuned out of this um, municipal election, as important as it is, they don't see it touching their lives, and therefore they probably will not participate. Okay, well, uh, that election, like a lot of municipal elections across the state of Georgia, uh, taking place uh, just a week from today, and we'll watch some of those races a little later in the show. I want to talk about a development in the race for mayor and city council up in Sandy Springs. But um, let's move on and talk about redistricting, which uh, starts, as you point out, next Wednesday at the state capitol. Um, Tamar, we have two dueling congressional maps that are early drafts in both cases. Um, Republicans put out a map uh, some time ago which showed that they hope to uh, control nine congressional seats. Democrats put out a kind of a big, big wish list map saying that the, the uh, state should be divided evenly, seven and seven, between Republican-leaning and Democratic-leaning districts. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, DOA, dead on arrival. That's just what happens when you're the minority party in the legislature as lines are, are being redrawn. Um, and, you know, they, they seem to have arrived at the the seven and seven to kind of reflect um, the fact that, that in the most recent election, it was about 50-50 between, uh, you know, the vote count in the presidential race and in the two Senate races with obviously Democrats man- managing to get the edge out. Um Dead on arrival will be interesting to see how much the Republican plan changes. Um, you know, this was introduced, I believe, by Jeff Duncan, um, who right now does not have the most currency within his uh, his caucus, given his criticism of Donald Trump. So uh, I'll be curious to see just how much the map changes from that point. Chuck Bullock, um, here's what Gloria Butler, who is the Democratic leader in the state Senate, said. As we crafted this proposed map, we wanted to ensure that it takes into account population trends within Georgia, reflects the will of Georgia voters at the ballot box, and allows voters of color an equal opportunity to elect their candidates of choice. Um, And the Democrats use these numbers, Chuck, to to show why they think there should be a more even split. Kemp beat Abrams 50% to 48%. Biden beat Trump 49.5 to 49.3 in the presidential race. And they say numbers like those show that the state is pretty evenly divided and the congressional uh, delegation should reflect that. Well, that's right. Now, some people would say that Democrats have a, a basic problem, and that basic problem is sometimes referred to as a natural gerrymander. And that means is that Democrats, Democratic supporters are not as well distributed, not efficiently distributed across the state. So where are Democrats? Well, they are really thick and heavy in Fulton and DeKalb and Clayton counties, but uh, in much of the rest of the state, you don't find many Democrats. Now, there is an outfit up at Princeton University which has done kind of independent assessments of the fairness of maps, and they've done this with an anticipatory participation of what maps should look like if they were fair. Now, a group in Georgia, Fair Districts Georgia, released the results of this, and that Princeton group ran a million simulations of what district maps might look like for Congress. And what they concluded was the most likely outcome 
would be either eight or nine Republican districts. And so that map that was released out of the Senate showed indeed nine Republican districts. It didn't show. So sure, there's some possibility with, with the million um, iterations that you'd have seven seats and probably even maybe as many as six and the other hand up to 10 or so uh, Republican seats. So this map that came out of the Senate, yeah, interestingly, that's kind of within the range of what the, the fair districts folks say would, would be acceptable. You're talking about the Republican map, of course, that came out. That's right, the Republican map, yeah. 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 I think that this actually highlights part of the challenge with districting. So, one, the Supreme Court has basically taken the stance that districting is a political issue, so therefore they're not involved in it. So unless they, unless they see egregious racial discrimination, they're probably not going to get involved and invalidate a district. And they've affirmed this, you know, very recently. So I wouldn't expect to see that. But also there seems to be within the jurisprudence this willingness to talk about whether or not districts are um, unfairly distributed sort of based on partisan expectations. And maybe there would be a willingness, perhaps not at the Supreme Court yet, but perhaps at the appellate level to say, tell us what we should be looking at. And the problem is in terms of all the modeling, the mathematicians and the statisticians and the folks who use GIS can't agree on sort of like how you know whether or not districts um, have been packed or cracked in ways that would proceed to be overly partisan. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to hear Dr. Bullock talk about sort of like the modeling that goes along here, but because there's some other intrepid uh, statistician and political scientist or, uh, and demographer who can come up with other districts, the courts are like, we just throw our hands up, we can't deal with any of this, and we don't believe any of your formulas. Like they haven't accepted a good formula yet to figure out how to solve this problem. And they won't because they'll just argue it's politics. Yeah, and actually, even to go on that a bit further, I mean, the, the most recent case that we had from the Supreme Court, Rucho v. Common Cause in, in 2019, sort of pretty explicitly said, if the only argument that you're making is that they have used sort of partisanship as the reason to draw these districts, not something else, but partisanship, that's not something we're going to get involved with, right? That is a completely legitimate political right, but also neutral in the sense of the Constitution reason to draw districts. And so that's not an issue. Um, what can become an issue is if it also appears that there are other things involved in it. For example, trying to very overtly break up areas that are where certain racial demographics live. Um, it's what can be called cracking um, sort of breaking up areas there, sort of really uh, what, what we think of as sort of gerrymandering, right? The, the original drawing of sort of these districts that look sort of like insane salamanders and things like that and stretch, you know, one way. Uh, North Carolina was particularly known for this of these districts that at one point uh, it was literally the width of the highway and stretched for, uh, I think it was 100 plus miles to be able uh, to draw on that. That's where you start to get into issues. But if what you're drawing is a dist are districts that really are in many ways, for example, uh, protecting incumbents or protecting uh, the ability to continue winning seats, then that is something that the Supreme Court has said, we're going to stay out of that completely. And that that is more what I think we're seeing in the 
maps that are being drawn in Georgia. And so there's very legitimate debates over sort of how we should draw them, what they should look like, what should be the partisan, right? Should the partisan reflect what we see sort of in the past 10 years or should it reflect what is perhaps coming in the future and what the last election sort of suggested that the state is becoming more to be. But those are the court at least has said that those are uh, a political dispute that they're going to stay out of. Um, Chuck, uh, the last redistricting uh, 10 years ago, uh, when there was still preclearance, Georgia Republicans, David uh, Ralston, among others, very proud of the fact that the map that they maps that they drew cleared that DOJ did not uh, come back at them with any of the lines they drew. Uh, they believe that showed they are capable of drawing maps that are as fair as fair can be, given that it's a political process, Chuck. Well, that's exactly right. And, of course, what DOJ looks at and has been pointed out already, uh, what courts are going to look at probably in the future is going to be exclusively the issue of race. How do you treat minorities? And what Republicans did 10 years ago was to ensure that all of the congressional districts, and I believe also all of the state house and state senate districts, were majority black, not just in population, but in terms of registered voters, which meant that it was highly likely, almost certain, that those African-American voters could elect their candidates of choice. Uh, you know, there's some concern that without Section 5 preclearance, that uh, minority communities would be cracked, would be split up. Republicans are drawing these maps, and they have absolutely no incentive to go and split up minority communities. Indeed, it works to the advantage of Republicans to have large numbers of heavily minority districts because how do you do that? Well, what you do is you bleach the surrounding districts, and those whiter neighboring districts are ones which are going to be much more likely to elect Republicans. So here in Georgia, we can go all the way back to the 1980 round of redistricting, at which point Republicans in the faith person of Paul Coverdale and Democrats in the person of uh, – um, oh, I forget his name right now. But anyway, they worked together very closely because they could see that both uh, you know, black Democrats and white Republicans could, could, could work together and both could win. Who were the losers? White Democrats were the losers because they had the seats these other two groups wanted to get. So, Tamar, um, we, we know that Republicans are in charge of this process and we've mentioned it on the show before, one of the advantages now when you're drawing new maps is it's now computer-driven. Uh, you know, Chuck mentioned the fact that uh, the Princeton gerrymandering project was able to run a million iterations of maps for the state of Georgia because their computers could do it in the blink of an eye. We used to, those of us who were old-timers, go down to the state capitol and see the laborious process of the huge maps that they laid out and had to physically, had to use, you know, um, uh, calculators and other tools to figure out how to draw the lines. Now, man, tomorrow you can change things in a heartbeat. Yeah, it's such a subjective process. And there's so many decisions that kind of had to be, you know, have to be made in terms of kind of your strategy for what you're trying to do if you're the, the majority party uh, redrawing these lines. Do you want to, um, you know, is your is your mission to shore up your um, your incumbents? Do you want to make sure that there are as few toss-up districts as possible. What what do you want to do? And so districts can look so different based on the on the choices you make. And certainly computers make it very easy. Um, 
Okay, while we're talking about redistricting, I, I thought it would be worthwhile to take a look at what's gone on in Texas, where the legislature has already completed the process of drawing the maps that they wanted. And uh, those maps, Republicans are feeling triumphant about the way they drew them, but there's a lot of criticism out there, certainly from Democrats and other observers, that the Texas maps in no way took into account the growth of minority communities across many portions of the state. The New York Times says the explosive growth in Texas was in large part the result of a booming Latino population, but despite that growth, Republican legislators avoided drawing a new Latino majority district. Um, the director of the Princeton Gerrymandering Project, in fact, was quoted in that article, and he said, quote, this is a fairly incredible uh, development considering that the Hispanic population grew by 1.98 million since the last census, enough to drive nearly all of Texas population growth. And, and so um, if the way that Texas has drawn the maps, minority voices are not going to be heard in, in elections in key parts of the state. And that, uh, Andra, may very well end up with uh, some, uh, uh, will, well, there'll definitely be lawsuits. The question is, how will they be uh, uh, received? Yeah, so they can still uh, bring that based on Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is still optimal post-Shelby County. Um, you know, I think the irony in Texas is, is that the Latino population is more heterogeneous uh, from a partisan standpoint. And so the idea that you would not draw district lines that could possibly be Republican, depending on where they are, um, is something that seems very, very short-sighted here in the situation. Here in the situation, and so you know, even for some of these lines that are going to get drawn, you're still not going to hasten sort of the change of population growth that's favoring people of color. And so, even if you draw these lines now for the next couple of cycles to benefit white Republicans, that doesn't necessarily mean that by the end of the decade, that's what these districts are going to look like. That's always my caution. Um, when people attempt gamesmanship by using district lines, they can do a lot, uh, but they might not be able to do it forever. Yeah, the other thing that the new map is doing, which is going to perhaps get them into trouble, because again, right, so we now don't have preclearance, which said that the maps were reviewed prior to being put into place, right? Now they can be challenged once they are adopted. Um, so it's not as though that you can't. Um, the issues that they're going to have is that a couple of the places where they redrew the lines, um, it does also look like they sort of very explicitly took areas where there are fairly sizable concentrations of either black or Latino voters and split them and then put them with sort of uh, very white areas to try to dilute their voting power, right? That's what we call cracking a district. So, for example, they did that with the, what's called the 10th district there um, and really sort of like started redrawing them in ways that not only don't take into account the impact that sort of changing demographics had on Texas's population growth, but also sort of seemed um, at times designed to try and dilute the voting power of those that contributed to it. And that's the type of thing that the courts have a tendency to look at um, 
not positively, right? Even as the court has tried to sort of pull out of this, that's the type of thing where you can really sort of show that there had been, right, this voting power and you've sort of deliberately kind of taken it away in drawing lines in ways, especially when it breaks up sort of communities that have sort of always been together, because this is one of the other issues that come into it is about um, the degree to which we should keep communities together, especially that have um, even just like geographical communities that have the same sort of interests. And, and, and that's what the redistricting committee that did its tour of the state heard from voters as they went around. Please keep our communities exactly. together as much as possible. I want to, Chuck, look at two other states just <clears throat> briefly as examples of how uh, interesting redistricting can become. So, first of all, Illinois, where a Democratic-controlled legislature is uh, doing the same kind of gerrymandering that uh, people worry Republicans will do in the states they control. And I'm looking at one map, Chuck, that it's, I don't know which district number this is. You may. It starts at Rockford, Illinois, which is up close to the northern boundary of Illinois, and it travels down in a circuitous kind of blocky route all the way almost as far south as St. Louis. I looked up on a map. That's a, a stretch of something like 260 miles. And the, I can't, you know, I know a map like that can get approved these days, but it's, it's a pretty troubling sign of Democratic power playing in Illinois. Yeah, well, my understanding is that to be partisan is to gerrymander. So it's something that each party has done. Uh, Democrats used to do it in Georgia, uh, would do it again if they had power. So it's not surprising that this happens. And indeed, some of the justification for what Illinois did 10 years ago, which it also came up with a very Democratic plan, was they said, well, we're trying to offset what the Republicans are doing in places in the South. So, yeah, it uh, kind of makes a trade-off nationally that we didn't used to see. So it's not just kind of taking care of your own there at home. You may say, well, you know, we need to you know, pull out all the stops here in our state to counter what those crooks are doing in the other party somewhere in another part of the country. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not surprising. So, uh, Tamar, <clears throat> lest we kind of frame this as just a partisan political squabble that has no impact on voters, I think we have to point out that when you look at a district like that in Illinois, you are bringing together constituencies that have virtually nothing in common with one another. You've got rural parts of a district. You've got heavily industrialized parts of a given district. And suddenly you are represented by a congressperson who can't possibly represent all those constituencies' best interests. Mm. And something we haven't really talked about uh, today is is the relationships in the legislature that that sometimes lead to maps like this. All the internal tiffs and friendships and alliances and enemies and how that can lead to the shaping of a district. If you want to screw over somebody, including a member of your own party, you can draw them a district like that to make sure that they're going to have a really hard time uh, getting reelected. And stuff like that has happened in Georgia in the past, as I'm sure uh, Chuck has has plenty of stories about that. So, um, you know, that might not be something that uh, gets a lot of headlines, but it's always really interesting as a political reporter to see who hates whom, especially within their own party. Well, Chuck, before we take a break, let's point yeah. out one example. I think the fourth district in Georgia at one point was a district that ran down the eastern side of the state and could, and represented such varying constituencies. It was a you couldn't even travel across that district very easily. 
Well, it was the 13th district, which ran from South DeKalb all the way down ah, to Savannah. 13th. Barely traced ah, along the, uh, excuse me, it was the, the, it's the 11th back then. Then barely traced right along the state line there. And it was referred to as the Sherman district because it went from Atlanta to the sea. Uh, <laughs> used, used, used to be thought that by giving a very diverse district, you might then end up with a legislator who would take a kind of a moderate stand because trying to balance the, the different parts of the constituency. Now, what's happened is that now with uh, partisanship being so rampant in Congress, yeah, it doesn't really matter what your district looks like. You told the party line so that the uh, justification of, you know, you need to try to balance the interests. Unfortunately, that doesn't work anymore either. Okay. Um, <laughs> by the way, that was a Democratic map back in those days that uh, drew that crazy-looking uh, district. Let's well, do this. Actually, Let's get to our first actually, break. Well, oh, go ahead, it, Chuck. Actually, it was a map that was demanded by the Department of Justice. Yes, it was drawn by Democrats, but that was the third iteration, and uh, DOJ was not going to approve Georgia maps under Section 5 unless they linked in the black population in Savannah with what would be a majority black district. Dr. Bullock, I bow to your vast knowledge of redistricting on that one. Thanks. Thanks for correcting me. Let's get to our first break of the show. We'll be back in just a minute. Three power player political scientists join us for this edition of Political Rewind. Uh, Amy Steigerwald, Andre Gillespie, and Charles Bullock, and of course, I'm joined uh, in the discussion by senior reporter at the AJC, Tamar Hallerman. Uh, Tamar, uh, Senator John Ossoff made a little news when he uh, spoke at the Atlanta Press Club last Friday. Um, in the aftermath of the third effort that senators made to try to pass, in fact, a, a watered-down and rel relatively minimalist federal voting rights bill, having had it filibustered by the Republicans, Asaf told the people at the press club event that he was open to seeing about some changes that would allow them to pass the bill, a bill, uh, without the, 60, uh, the Senate rule of 60 votes needing, needed to debate the legislation. He said, quote, we should do what it takes to pass federal voting legislation. And tomorrow, we should say that President Biden last week in the <clears> aftermath <throat> of that uh, uh, filibuster uh, also said he was more open to it. Uh, Tamara, you covered the Hill for a very long time, so I turn to you first for your expertise on this. Yeah, I mean, the, the Senate has been chipping away at the tradition of the filibuster um, over the last 10, 15 years. It started as a stalemate over uh, confirming federal judges. And so, um, you know, Former Senate Majority Reader Harry, leader Harry Reid was was very upset at Mitch McConnell for blocking the fast confirmation of judges for for then President Barack Obama, and so kind of bit by bit, the filibuster started being diluted. You know, let's get rid of the sixty vote threshold for lower level federal judges, and then Republicans, when they were in power, did the same thing, removing that. Uh, for Supreme Court justices. We started removing that for cabinet picks. And so it seems like it's only going to be a matter of time until we'll get to that point where the parties get so frustrated with each other that on legislation, which is the one kind of bit uh, of business that has not been impacted yet by changing Senate <laughs> filibuster rules, that, that that could be time, you know, once rank and file starts um, itching. Um, at the same time, 
you know, they, they still haven't convinced Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema that, that it's an urgent thing yet. And so until those two centrist Democrats move, um, Joe Biden and John Ossoff can say whatever they want. Um, you know, these rules are still going to hold. Andra, I understand expediency, but I think this is the, the rule here is be careful what you wish for coming true. It, it, there, there are dangers in moving in that direction, no matter how frustrating it is right now. The Republicans seem to be behaving in an obstructionist manner for pure partisan reasons. Well, yes. And given the tit for tat that sort of accompanied the nuclear option over judicial <clears throat> nominations, you can only anticipate that any move that Democrats made will be matched and then exceeded uh, when Republicans are back in power. That was partially Kirsten Sinema's justification for supporting maintaining the filibuster as is. Joe Manchin is more of an um, institutionalist. The Senate is supposed to, like, you know, stop silly ideas from the House. And so, therefore, we need bipartisan consensus in order to make things pass. Uh, but then there's this larger issue of... Uh, do you need supermajoritarianism in order for things to be able to get through in, high, in a highly polarized time? Like, what is the democratic principle behind uh, basically needing 60 votes in order to bring things to the floor? Um, and there might be other reforms that can come into place. And so that's why I think some of these intermediary steps that have been uh, brought out there, like resuming the talking filibuster, perhaps eliminating the notion of a legislative hold, because it's basically all that a filibuster is at this point where basically, you know, the senator can just basically go tell the parliamentarian, I want to talk about this, and therefore it doesn't come up to the floor anymore. There might be other things that, that can be done to stop that, that that falls short of it. But there, but in a highly polarized, highly diverse country, a lot of people are having a hard time seeing why you need 60 votes to do anything if you can if you have 51. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, Amy, uh, this is no longer, we're no longer talking about Mr. Smith goes to Washington here. Nobody has to stand up and command the floor for 24, 36 hours, whatever, although there are state legislatures where that does need to take place. Um, and, and in fact, there's been some talk, Amy, that that might be a way uh, to re revise the filibuster rule is go back to a procedure which, which requires you hold the floor uh, to prevent a vote from taking place. Yeah, so uh, that was actually one of the main points, and this is a little bit of my hobby horse that I think some of you have heard me rant about. But, like, what we are seeing right now, none of these are actually filibusters. The filibuster rule has not been changed. If you want to actually filibuster, that means that when a motion is brought up to end debate, you have to object to it, and then you don't allow debate to end. You stand up on the floor and you keep talking until they're able to cobble enough votes together to get debate to end. None of that is happening, right? What we're actually seeing are holds. We're seeing sort of a mutation of the process where, um, and it really started back with Bill Frist um, under George W. Bush when there were filibusters of judicial nominees that they decided we don't want to give up the floor time for this because one of the things about a real filibuster is it wastes time on the floor and you can't get other things done. And so the majority leaders have said basically like, oh, you've expressed the fact that you're going to object. I'm going to let you because I want to get other stuff done. So what has gotten done? Actually, ironically, during the first era, they got done legislation. It wasn't nominations. What's been happening now is that 
Biden has confirmed more nominees than uh, have been confirmed to the courts uh, by this point in time, other than actually going all the way back to Richard Nixon. So that's what they're doing in the interim. But what they're not doing is legislation. Um, and I think that one of the things that we might start to see is that on the one hand, there is sort of this push to end the filibuster. But there's also a very good question that I'm, I'm sort of surprised that more people aren't asking, which is, if, in mm-hmm. fact, right, the opposition wants to stop this and believes so strongly, why not make them actually filibuster, right? Because right now, the reason that it is so powerful and why it is working so well is that it's not public. It's happening behind the scenes. Right. No it one happens sees close it. to it. No one understands what a cloture vote is. That doesn't mean anything, right? There aren't filibusters, right? Basically, they're getting to wield enormous power without actually having to do anything. Chuck, jump in. Yeah, the talk is that they might have what they call a carve-out, just so for voting rights legislation. They say, well, okay, most other legislation still requires 60 votes, but for voting rights, it'll only cost 50 votes. Think about, though, what the potential is, uh, how that might play out. Assume, say, Republicans take control of Congress in 2022, which looks highly likely. Assume also that uh, uh, Donald Trump gets reelected in 2024. Okay, what that would mean then would be with 50 votes, you could reverse whatever kind of legislation Democrats pass this year. And what's more, you could take legislation like Georgia's SB 202 or the Texas law or whatever else and make it the law of the land. So it wouldn't just be that it applied in certain states. Then though the things which Democrats are very unhappy with in these state laws, that then becomes a national law. And again, there'd be no way for Democrats to filibuster it. So, you know, Democrats need to keep in mind that old curse. May your wishes come true. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Tomorrow. <laughs> exactly. Chuck just made the exact point that, that I wanted to make. And I think it's just a question of what voters want the Senate to look like and what they want the legislative branch to do. The filibuster is a custom. It's not in the Constitution, so it can be very easily changed. And over the decades, we have seen the use of it changed And I think people need to truly consider how much do customs matter? Um, Do we want the Senate to look like a house where the majority gets to completely railroad the minority, Um, where you pass legislation with the understanding that it'll be the law of the land as long as your party is in power, which in American government might only be two or four or six years, and then the pendulum turns and that stuff immediately gets swept away? Or do you hope that you can build something more substantial and long-lasting by being forced to work with the other side? Um, Do you want more continuity to be able to temper what the other party is doing? And that's something I like to remind uh, my Democratic friends all the time is that, you know, if if Democrats couldn't filibuster when Trump was in power, there would have been all sorts of changes to the immigration code, to abortion um, that would have become the law of the land. No. So oh, no, uh, no. Chuck Amy, and, Amy says no. <laughs> Amy no, says no. There weren't any filibusters during the Trump thing. What happened there, actually, because remember, they simply weren't brought up, right? The bills were passed in the House, and the majority leader simply didn't bring them up. There weren't filibusters. And so, like, that's also a really important thing to note. That's not how it was being stopped. Thank you for that correction. Okay, so, but, but Chuck and Tamar made an important point, I think, Andra, a, gen- a larger point. The filibuster as a cudgel 
is only as potent as the extreme partisanship that exists within the body of the United States Senate, right? In other words, if Democrats and Republicans were able to work together today as they have in past eras, I, on the show the other day, mentioned uh, that extraordinary Robert Caro, Master of the Senate, the second book in his volume on Lyndon B. Johnson. And we saw how Lyndon Johnson was able to work with Southern senators led by Richard B. Russell to work out a compromise. Now, they were the same party. I get that. Nevertheless, you could actually work in the United States Senate to accomplish legislation. Now that you can't, that it gives the filibuster more of a blunt power, doesn't it? So, I mean, I think uh, we should talk about filibusters and legislative holds kind of together and note the differences kind of between them, um, you know, as, as, as Amy is reminding us to do. Uh, you know, I think the larger issue here is, yes, there's hyperpartisanship. We have narrowly divided uh, chambers in terms of the number of seats each party holds. Um, and then we still have a Senate that behaves incrementally, right, as American government is organized. And people are really frustrated with that. And I think that frustration gets amplified in highly partisan, highly polarized times. So part of the reason why people want to get rid of filibuster is they want to get stuff done. They're tired of slow incremental change because they think that it actually hurts the most marginalized people. But the problem is, is that we'll now start to have these very fast pendulum swings, uh, swings uh, from one you know, partisan regime to the next partisan regime. And are we prepared for that type of whiplash? I think there's some people who are going to argue, yeah, I'm totally prepared for it, but we have to live through it. And so it's a hard thing that I'm sure Chuck and Amy do the same thing, but I have to remind my students, this institution is designed to move slowly. It is not designed to have, like, you know, drastic change because that's not the most stable thing in the world. But that's hard to accept when it's your set of legislative priorities that you want to get through um, and turned into policy in a quick way. Yeah, I think some people would say, yes, it's designed to move slowly, but it is designed to occasionally move. move. <laughs> we got to get right. to, <laughs> get to our final break. We'll be back with more in a moment. Tamar Hallerman, one of the really interesting races that we're going to be watching uh, next week is in Sandy Springs, uh, the mayor's race and then city council races. For the first time, there's an African-American candidate, Dante Carter, running against Rusty Paul, the incumbent uh, for mayor up there. And I think there are five African-American uh, uh, candidates running for city council. Um, and Sandy Springs demographically has changed dramatically since Eva Galambos fought to make it a city some 20 plus years ago. Uh, so African-Americans have a, a much better chance right now than they would have back then. But as you know, Tamara, your colleague Greg Bluestein uh, posted a photograph of a flyer that has gone out to people in Sandy Springs. The headline is, we can't let Sandy Springs turn into Atlanta. There, is, uh, there are two photographs. One is of rundown housing in an obviously poor, underserved neighborhood. The other is of a police presence at what appears to be a demonstration of some sort. Um, the suggestion is there might be violence brewing in that photograph. And this was put out by the Fulton County Republican Party. Uh, the African-American candidates up there say this is absolutely a case of race baiting. Tamar? 
Yeah, never mind that the picture of the the police officers was uh was taken in Baltimore, <laughs> not even in uh not even in Georgia, but but sure, and that's been uh you know that's been something that we've seen in in lots of messaging in this race over the last couple of weeks, uh, messaging that that people say is is racist or or at the very least race baiting. Um, Republicans have of course embraced a, a law and order message in in campaigns uh, this year, and that's you know. That's from, you know, the race for, for Senate and for governor all the way down to, to some of these local races. So it'll be interesting to see what ultimately happens with with this race. So, Andra, some of the what, what the copy says accompanying these photographs is when you elect Democrats to nonpartisan city offices, you endanger public safety and threaten the financial viability of our community. And of course, Andra, that is a that's a message we're going to hear from Republican candidates and including the governor of Georgia in his race for re-election. Um, so, I mean, it's a dog whistle that's trying to hide behind partisanship and claim neutrality. And so I think we just kind of have to call these things out for what they are. Um, part of it is tied up in the history of the creation of, of, of these cities and towns. We can't ignore white flight. We also can't ignore the fact that law and order messaging traces itself back to attempts to try to reach out to disaffected white voters um, after the civil rights movement when you couldn't say, like, I'm pro-segregation um, for things. And then even sort of like the framing of you don't want Sandy Springs to become Atlanta, you're basically sort of framing Atlanta as urban and as inner city. And those are synonymous in many people's minds with blackness in part because Atlanta has prided itself on its racial diversity, but also because we assume that all black people live in cities. Um, and that's, I think, part of the surprise here. It's like, oh my gosh, black people moved to the suburbs in part because Atlanta got expensive or because people, you know, just, you know, they wanted a yard um, and uh, you could get a bigger one in Sandy Springs than you could in the city of Atlanta. And, and, and they're going to have to sort of reckon with sort of what the subtext of, of, of everything that they're saying is. Chuck? Yeah, as a voice of ancient history, um, whenever there is this potential for change for a new group to take over, we see those kinds of, of kinds of warnings. I was thinking back to 1973, which is when Maynard Jackson gets elected mayor of Atlanta. Very hard-hitting runoff, and Sam Mazzell is saying things like, you don't want to bring in this new person who represents this new emerging group because it's going to be the end of Atlanta as, as we know it. So, you know, this is a message that gets, gets recycled and used in all kinds of communities. Uh, so, is it, you know, is it surprising to see it? No, it's not. Is it discouraging? Yes, it is. Well, and I think it's also that you have sort of this playing up of sort of Atlanta being, right, this is this is fostering into this sort of thing that we're seeing hard-hitting across the state that somehow, right, there's all this crime in Atlanta. Um, and also that somehow that, I guess that crime simply stops when you get to the border. And so therefore, like it's not going to cross over. We're really seeing this coming into this debate over uh, whether or not Buckhead should be split off as the same city. It's many of the sort of same messages and um, kind of appeals, unfortunately, um, to sort of fear and sort of fear of otherness and threats. Um, the unfortunate part of a lot of the psychological research in political science is that people do respond to ads in particular that trigger a kind of fear-based response. 
um, that that can cause people to then uh, that 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 can be a very big motivating force, especially within politics, unfortunately. And so it's really kind of continuing that. And, you know, back to Nixon's law and order campaign, we're continuing to see. Uh, that particular uh, strain of thought being one that we see being carried out here in in Atlanta. So, Tamar, I could imagine the uh, same photographs with a slightly different headline being repurposed by Bill White and the Buckhead City movement, folks. We can't let Buckhead continue to be Atlanta. Pictures of a rundown community, a house with boarded up windows, demonstrators in the street. It's all the same theme. Oh, certainly. And it's something that we saw with Donald Trump when he was running for re-election, making his pitch to win back suburban women in 2020 after um, a lot of the racial justice protests in the aftermath of of George Floyd's murder. Um, I'm sure we'll see a version of it in the governor's race in 2022 with Brian Kemp, uh, especially when he's had such a convenient foil in Atlanta with Keisha Lance Bottoms. I'm sure he will do the same thing with Stacey Abrams should she opt to run again. Hey, uh, Chuck, because you are the keeper of our history in some ways, what I said at the beginning, I think is correct. Tell me if I'm wrong. I think Eva Galambos, who who was the most passionate fighter back in the days when they did, we did not carve out new cities from unincorporated areas of counties. She and her colleagues fought for many, many years to turn Sandy Springs into an independent city from Fulton County. Um and, and she would have never envisioned that's the way that Sandy Springs population would progress over the years, I don't imagine. Well, I think you're probably right, yeah. And uh, you know, these changes we've seen most recently also show up in the recent elections in Cobb and Gwinnett and Henry County, where the first time they elected African-American sheriffs. So, and again, this then ties all the way back to our first discussion, that is, even when it comes to redistricting, you're trying to anticipate what's going to happen over the next 10 years as you go about drawing districts that you hope are going to continue to honor the the party which they were drawn for. So, yeah, none of us, I guess, are very good at anticipating how change is going to come about, and most of us are busy just looking at what's happening right now. But one of the things we should keep in mind is that change is certainly going to come, that we do not live in a static society, and particularly in a state like Georgia, which is a growth state, we're attracting lots of new people, not just diverse in terms of their ethnicity, but diverse in terms of where they come from. People are moving here from the Northeast, from California, Texas, whatever. And so Georgia in 10 years from now is going to look very different than it does right now today. All right. Chuck Bullock, you get the last word on today's Political Rewind. I really appreciate the terrific conversation. Charles Bullock of the University of Georgia, uh, Dr. Andrew Gillespie at Emory University, and Dr. Amy Steigerwald at Georgia State University. Tamar Hallerman, so glad that you could be with us today. Um, We're going to be back, of course, with another show uh, tomorrow. And one of the things we're going to do tomorrow is look at some of the key races that are going to take place next week in a couple of other states where we think we're going to get major indications of how the 2022 cycle is going to shape up. It's particularly Uh, true in Virginia, where there's a hotly contested governor's race. We're going to talk about the messaging that's being used up there by a Republican candidate with no experience in elective politics 
and uh, a Democrat who served previously as governor of Virginia. And that'll tell us something about what we can expect to see moving forward in races here and across the country. We're out of time for today's show. Thank you so much to all of you who are on the panel today. Thank you at home for listening. And thank you, Jesse Neiswanger, Sam Burmis Dawes, and Sarah Callis for always making the show work as well as you make it work. I'll see you tomorrow. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy. Please wear a mask when you're indoors around people. Go get a flu shot if you can. See you tomorrow.